There's a saying in Christian circles that we have four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the distinctive thing about the four Gospels is that entirely focus on the wonderful person and the saving work of Jesus. But then, at the new member service, what you see when you hear the brief but true testimonies of believers, you are listening to the fifth Gospel. Because the purpose of all the four Gospels presenting you Jesus is so that people will believe in Him and find new life because of Jesus. And so, you and me are the fifth Gospel because people see Christ through us as we lift the Gospel and share that. A youth pastor in America took his university students from the hostel to a Christian camp, obviously, to teach them the Bible. So we began with an interesting question to all those who took on this camp. And the question was, can you think of the ways, if you were chosen by God to write the Bible today, how would you write the Bible today? Right? And so campus university pastor taking a group of university students for this camp. And here are some of the responses. If they were chosen by God to write the Bible today, number one, uh, in Genesis chapter 4, right? So, the reason Cain killed Abel is because they were roommates. <laughs> Never mind. Okay. <laughs> Secondly, if they wrote the Bible today, Jesus would have multiplied pizza and chips, not loaves and fishes. Thirdly, in a more egalitarian world, right, pushed by feminism, they would use three wise women instead of three wise men. Right? And What's the difference if three wise women turn up to welcome uh, the Lord Jesus, baby Lord Jesus, or the young Lord Jesus? The woman would have asked for directions. The woman would have arrived on time. The woman would have helped deliver the baby. The woman would have cleaned the stable. The woman would have cooked a meal. The woman would have brought disposable diapers as a gift. <laughs> Quite interesting, right? Have you asked, asked that? All of which leads us to ask more seriously, who wrote? 66 books that you and me, sorry, I should turn this off, right? I should turn this. I'm okay to preach to this. Okay. Are you hearing this okay? Yeah, because I'm with two mics here. So. so who wrote the 66 books? What do you know about the writers? How reliable is their writing? And if it's reliable, should you bet your life on this? Your whole life and every area of your life and from Monday to Sunday, live your life as if this was the Word of God. If you think that way at some point, if you struggle with those questions of authorship and reliability, then Luke's gospel is for you. Luke was a doctor. He went about researching the life, the person and the work of this man called Jesus. And so, as we read it earlier, it says this, Inasmuch as, as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. So he's writing this for a sponsor, a very prominent person called Theophilus. And he's writing this for express purpose. What's the purpose? That you might have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And so Theophilus maybe had some basic, essential knowledge, but he, Luke writes for him 
And then for the wider audience, 2,000 years later, we are included in this for the certainty of things. And so a possible outline of this portion, right, is this. It is Luke's case for Christ. And then from verse 5 onwards to verse 80 is a very long portion in the light of this new member services. It, I just can only condense it. And then our case for Christ. Case for Christ was a book, title of a book, written, written by Lee Strobel. And it sold 5 million copies the last time I checked it. And it sets out for you the reliability of the Bible and the dependability of the subject matter of the Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ. That it survives all historical scrutiny. If you believe in persons and events of history that has fewer documents to support it, then all the more for intellectual consistency, you can believe in the Bible. So from Luke's perspective, what does he say? First thing to take note from the passage, in verse 1 to 4, where we'll spend most of the time, many have undertaken, which means Luke is saying, I'm not the first one to do this. I'm not the only one. I'm not the silly one to do this, to write about. Jesus, in fact, at the time in the first century, about the time when Luke was writing this, maybe around 60 AD, right? And that is about Jesus died around 30, 33 AD. And the Gospels and Epistles are written around this period, barely 30 years. If you write something 20, 30 years after the passing of someone, there are many eyewitnesses of that same person. Some believe, some don't. Whatever it is, Jesus remains a lightning rod. He remains a magnet. He remains a centre of attention. In social media language, you talk about Jesus, the person in the work of Jesus, he'll be trending. Facebook, hashtag, TikTok, he'll probably be getting the highest number of hits. And so to use the words of the commentator that we are reading, right, Dave uh, Ruff Davis, he says, there was a fascination about Jesus. And what was this fascination about Jesus? Not just Luke, but many before him have undertaken to do this. And it's in the words that are there, that has been fulfilled among us. In the ancient world, they were always concerned about this promise fulfillment. In our modern day world today, in the 21st century, what grabs your mind and heart is newness, new inventions, new gadgets. And so that's why the Steve Jobs of this world are worth trillions of dollars, was worth. Apple is the number one company of the world and stays up there for a long time. That's why Elon Musk is right up there. We are preoccupied with newness, with inventiveness. The ancient world that we, in which we find ourselves was always suspicious of newness. Their security in life came from oldness. The hand-me-down traditions, the hand-me-down truths, it came from legacy. It came from oral tradition and written tradition. And so, there's been so much written about the Lord Jesus. And that's very important for us to note. Many have undertaken, so he has jumped on the bandwagon. He's caught the Jesus bug, as it were, and he started to write. And anybody who is anybody in the ancient world will be asked for the opinions of this. Well, just let me say that again. When COVID broke out, we didn't know what to think about it scientifically, politically, economically, personally. 
For those of us who have faith as Christians, we didn't know how to think about this. How, what, how, how should we think of this pandemic? Does the Bible speak about pandemics? And so you're waiting for anybody who is anybody to write something about COVID. So what does John Piper say about the pandemic? What did Tim Keller, before he passed away, say about the pandemic? What are the seminal minds, then they ask Christian leaders in Singapore, what are you saying about this? What are you thinking about this? It's a little bit like that, or a lot like that, with Jesus. There are many opinions about him, but which one is true? And during COVID, going back to COVID-19, so what's your view of vaccinations? Should, should, should you be pro-vaccines or anti-vaccines? What's your view about the war between Israel and Hamas? Should you be pro-Israel because you're Christian, you come from a Judeo-Christian background? Or should you exercise common humanitarianism and side with the Palestinians? So anybody who's anybody given an opinion, here is Luke. Embarking on this, obviously on our behalf, checking out the truth value of the things, and it has to do with promise and fulfillment. Is this person called Jesus truly the fulfillment of what God said to his people Israel? And if he really is the fulfillment, then the implication is not just for Israel, but for the entire world, because the person promised by God carries various titles, and one of those titles is King or Messiah not just of Israel, but king of the universe forever and ever. So that's the first thing to take note. Second thing to take note is he has followed all things closely for some time past. So as Luke jumps on this bandwagon to research as objectively as he can about the person, the words, and the miracles of Jesus, right? He's doing this as objectively. You listen to this say, why am I laboring this point? The first four verses carry so much weight for us. You ask yourself, wasn't he a convert when he started? Didn't he grow up in a Christian home? No, there were no Christians. He was a Gentile, right? And if he was a convert, surely as he pulls together the story of Jesus, he might spice out certain parts, he might blur out certain parts. There, would be, there might be exaggeration about certain parts. And he says, no, my account is from eyewitnesses. From the very start, in anything in life, to get to the truth, and if you ever have to discern truth in a court of law, I hope you don't have to, you will always have to call eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses get you from subjectivity to objectivity. Did you actually see him do it? Did you actually hear her say this? So about four or five years, I worked in the media, and my job switched journalist and then became sub-editor. Sub-editor means you wait for the stories to come in from the reporters. And after they come in with the stories, after a while, as you get that, um, somebody said something, will go up to the journalist and say, is there, is there an eyewitness account? Is there a name to this? They know it's part of their job. You've got to put a name to it. You've got to put uh, an event to it, the factuality of it, right? So there's concern for the exactness of this, the accuracy of this, the historicity of this. And if Luke had exaggerated or blurred something or just hyped out Jesus, those Jews especially who knew about this 
the anti-Jesus lobby would have read this and said, this is totally not credible at all. Forget the 21 chapters of Luke. And I got this word from the commentator, and it's very good. He writes an orderly account for certainty. And the orderly account for certainty is he's sharing, he's writing this to evangelize. He's writing this to build up the church. And evangelism, the sharing of Jesus, does not compromise accuracy in a nutshell. In fact, you want to share Jesus, it demands accuracy about him. It demands historicity about him. That 2,000 years ago, there was such a birth. 2,000 years ago, there was such a young man who went to the temple. 2,000 years ago, there, was such a, there were two couples in this. And so, that is the background that he's writing about here, giving us assurance of the reliability of his writing. And here, he says, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. There's a difference between certainty of facts and certitude of faith. Certitude seems like a new word, right? So gravity is a fact. Are you, as we sit here, all 300 of us or thereabouts, are you certain about the fact of gravity? Are you? Sometimes parents with young kids, right, who are running around, who have learned to run now, they tell them there's such a thing called gravity. If you climb too high, you run too fast, you might fall. But children, though you tell them about the fact of gravity, have no respect for the fact of gravity until they fall and crash. And then the certainty of gravity becomes real to them. So certainty of facts must be responded to by certitude of faith. So if you don't watch your diet, diabetes is a dangerous thing. Is that right? Diabetes is a fact. If you live an unhealthy lifestyle and eat the wrong foods and you don't exercise. But do you have the right response to the possibility and reality of diabetes? I don't know. Maybe until some part, some appendage of yours has to be cut off as you get diabetes. Certainty of facts must be met by certitude. Certainty of facts is propositional. There is gravity. There's the possibility of diabetes. There are so many things in life, right? But certitude of faith is relational. Just because you know a fact doesn't mean you have a relationship, a right response to it. When Luke uses this word, I'm not writing this, this as it were the CV of Jesus for you to be informed for you to be impressed, right? But for you to be safe. It's for the right response to the person and the finished work of Jesus. So I sit here, let me just ask you, is that making sense at this moment? Because if you think Jesus and the Bible is just information about Jesus and for you to be impressed for the next 30 minutes and then to forget him completely, then the certainty of facts about him, about his birth, about his life, about his words, about his miracle, about his resurrection, has no impact on your life. That's not what Luke means by this word, the certainty of things. This is promise and fulfillment. God made a promise to his people. 
Did you take God at His promise? Or you didn't? Or they were just blank words to you, Israel. It were bl- they were blank words. And so God's case for Christ from this point onwards, now we know about Luke's purpose for writing. He chooses two unlikely couples. And here I can only summarize. And who are two, the two unlikely couples? The first couple you're introduced to is Elizabeth and Zechariah. And what are the two things you need to know about Elizabeth and Zechariah? For those of us who have studied this in our discipleship books, what is the first thing, the positive thing about them? They were righteous. And their righteousness as Jews was displayed in they obeyed God's word. They obey what God gave to his people. Then you get the negatives about them. Right? What must you never go to old people and promise them? Those in their 70s and 80s. You must never go to an old folks' home and say, Uncle, next year you will have a child. <laughs> it's totally inappropriate. It's just a light version. It's totally impossible. And that's why the angel Gabriel appears to them. And then as the angel Gabriel brings the good news that Elizabeth, though you're on in age, and it's almost impossible. And that's what they said in return. Zechariah says in return, in, in case you came from heaven, right? You're an angel, Gabriel. You haven't noticed I'm an old man, you know? Maybe it slipped your mind that you're talking to a very old couple. And that's why the angel says, nothing is impossible with God. Most likely a reference back to Genesis 18:14, when God said the same thing to Abraham and Sarah. And Sarah, when she heard this in the tents, she laughed that she would bear a child and from this child will come salvation for the world. Did you notice from the first book of the Bible to its fulfillment, God has a way of bringing life out of a dead womb. God works from barrenness to newness of life. He's done that from the first couple, Abraham and Sarah, of this gospel message. He's now doing it to Elizabeth and to Zechariah, who will bear John the Baptist. So that's the first unlikely couple. And Zechariah, who finds this impossible to, to believe, all of a sudden he turns mute. He's unable to speak from this point onwards. Yep. The second unlikely couple is Mary and Joseph. And how young was Mary when she was she conceived, right? Or through the Spirit was led to conceive the Lord Jesus. They estimate she was 15, 16, 17, around there. We listen to this at modern-day people. Boy, that's really underage, right? My mother came from China. Among her generation, she got married at 18. She was the oldest among her generation to marry at 18. Most of them married 15, 16, 17. 18, you're already an old maid. And so the pendulum switches in the account to who God uses the unlikely people for his salvation purposes. Again, Joseph and Mary are described as poor forgotten Jews. But these poor forgotten Jews, guess what? These poor forgotten Jews are not forgotten by God. And so, yeah, let me take you there. A place for the old, a place for the young, in God's people, the church. As we see now in Luke 1 and 2, God chooses the nobodies of Israel. He chooses the faithful that Israel had forgotten. 
the faithful who never forgot God. And so they are like the representatives of the remnant that God never forsook. And so they become unknown to us, models not of certainty of facts. Ah, yes, God is our God. Oh, yes, we are the chosen people of God. But we have lived under Roman rule for hundreds of years. No more relational response to the promises of God. That becomes important for us to realize. So there is always within God's church a place for every age, as we see in the choice of Zechariah and Elizabeth and Joseph and Mary. We cut right to Mary's song. And in Mary's song, the thing to take note is this. God's mercy is for those who fear Him. God's mercy is not blanket, right? It's not undiscerning. I offer you mercy. It doesn't matter how you respond, Israel. I'll continue to offer you mercy endlessly. His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength in His arm. In the one God, you see mercy and you see power. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Obviously, Mary is of humble estate. She would be the very unnoticed among the people of God. You could walk into a church gathering like that during Mary's time, and Mary's sitting there. She'll be poor, she'll be, but she's, in God's eyes, the faithful one, unlike those who may be more prominent, which is, more, uh, which is a warning for us. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Whatever you do not know about this child that Mary will bear, he has come to deal with a very human problem. And dare we say, the, the most grievous and dangerous of human problems, what do you think is your greatest sin? It will be pride. It will be pride. To move us from the delusion that we can find in our kings and our empires the perfect life on earth. And he will come and offer us the perfect kingdom and the perfect life. In Zechariah's song, after John the Baptist is born, it says this, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, and you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation in the forgiveness of their sins, because of, can you tell me, the tender mercy of God. If God was not merciful to you, and mercy means He rightly, He withholds what you and me rightly deserve, His wrath. Whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. In the words of the commentator and in the words of all those, our brothers and sisters in Christ, did you not hear, and you, can I encourage you to read this? Again and again, we had a whole lot of youth in basic give their testimony. And the common thing about their testimonies is this. And I read just one of them. Priscilla. Yep. I grew up in a very good Christian home. It was a blessing to have grown up in a loving Christian home where mum and dad persevered in bringing me to church even when I would try to feign sickness in talking about God to me even when I did not know who God was. 
in praying for me and reminding me to stay in conversation with the Lord even when I was too shy to pray aloud. Reminiscing on my adolescence, I was a diligent attendee of basic. I was one loud, slightly aloof youth with boisterous energy last, that lasted only until the time to answer Bible study questions. 13 to 16-year-old me did not know Christ. She just pretended to know Him under the guise of being enthusiastic at church. Isn't that good writing? It's not bad, no? Read the testimonies. These are young folks writing it. So they feigned this, they feigned this, they fake it. And they went to church and went to basic because parents expected them, not because of the certitude of faith. Did she not know the certainty of the facts? Like many of our youth, again and again, they said, I know that. It just didn't happen for me. Then somewhere along the line, things happened. By His grace, my heart and eyes were open since that time. Read it, and my life has never been the same. In every reach of my life, Christ has been so prominent and so present. My heart is filled with nothing but thankfulness. Notwithstanding this, it's my deepest prayer that I continue to use every gift, every opportunity, every burst of exuberant zeal, every moment of quiet reflection, not for the praise of men, not for the fulfillment of self, but to understand Him more, love Him more, and seek communion with Him. Can you believe this one, our young people writing it? Eh, look a bit astounded lah. Could you have written this? The honesty of a changed life, one after the other, started to confess. Confess what? Yep, I'm going backwards. I haven't found this. Yep. The forgiveness of sins. You just said the Apostles' Creed. Which of the Apostles' Creed was meaningful to you? I hope everything. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ. And last but not least, I believe in the church. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Can you imagine living in a world where there is no pardon for your sin, which you will have everlasting memory of, increasing guilt and burden of, and implications in your life? Thank God that the child that was promised to marry, the child that John the Baptist would announce in his adult years, would bring us forgiveness of sins and make us children of God. Amen? Where does that leave you and me? In the light of time, I just wanted to share this with you. So, in the first two chapters, you see this. And we have heard testimonies from the old to the young. And AOPC on denomination, we've set strengthening faith and family as our theme. And why is that important? It's important for us to note the phenomenon that's happening from the West to the East. That young adults between the ages of 18 to 35 make up only about 10 to 50% of an average mainline church. Methodists, Anglicans, Baptists, Lutherans, Presbyterians, we are all in that zone. If you go to many churches in the West, you walk in, it's mainly grey hair. It's as if this gospel has no relevance, has no power to save young people. By God's grace, I've been trying to pray and plead with all our 37 churches, Chinese-speaking, English-speaking, please do not just live with this and bury it under the carpet. We are facing a crisis of demographics. And what we have here, you know, in the, in the 9 a.m. service, 
I think a hundred youth turn up to cheer and to take part in the testimonies and the baptism of their peers. That is not a phenomenon you find commonly in many churches. And I don't say that in comparison, I don't say that in boasting. This is the way God has blessed us. In the early years, we had so few youth that we couldn't get a 15 to 20 of them to start a fellowship that would last. So what we have now, 400 to 450 youth meeting on a Saturday with encouragement for the youth to come and join us on Sunday has to do with their eternal destiny under God. Amen? We started with two children and now God has blessed it with 600 coming regularly from toddlers to preschool to, kin- to primary ages. A thousand on paper is not to be taken for granted. We just had our English Presbytery AGM yesterday. I look at all the stats. The number of weddings across the board on average is three to five weddings across the board. Three to five weddings across the board, how many children are, are they going to produce? Unless they produce, like my family, 12 kids, the Sunday school will close down. We're not having biological growth. We're not having conversion growth. Why? Is it because the gospel has lost its power? Somewhere along the line? No, friends. We've got to really ask. And last night I met a, a brother in Christ from Australia. He works for a Christian organization. And he came here and yep, we were sharing about the church and he's concerned about the church in, in Australia, a Western country down under. Right? It's so hard to find young people in our church because they've been so turned off by the institutional church. We never want to be the institutional church either in clothing or in the way we practice things. We just want to introduce Jesus to you, pure and simple. To introduce church Christianity to you, worse still, to introduce churchianity to you is the worst thing we can give you. We don't want to download a whole set of laws into your life, young people. We want to point you to the law fulfiller, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a very huge difference. And so I challenge the pastors and leaders of our 37 churches it's averaging now, in all truth, 10 to 15%. One or two churches, 20%. Can we pray that by 2030, it might rise to 25, 30%? We don't like figures, but it just works this way. Can one person pray and bring somebody else to Christ? It was a preacher that said, what is Christianity? What is evangelism? Evangelism is one person, one beggar, telling another beggar, where to find food. That's who I am. A beggar, spiritually poor, spiritually lost in life at 19 years old. The Lord Jesus found me. And now this beggar is telling you how to find the best food for your life. As in the testimonies of our brothers and sisters in Christ. In the earlier testimony, brother, you read this testimony, Ivan, he confessed to his pawning. And that's only the tip of the iceberg. By God's grace, he confessed to that. And some may sit here enslaved to that habit. You think you can hide away porn for the rest of your life with no repercussions in a relationship with God and a relationship with others? I preached at a conference in Belgrave. And this woman comes up to me and says, Years ago you came, and you were the only one I've seen in Australian churches preach against pornography and tell us the right way to do sex. I've been a Christian from birth. Nobody said that. At that time when I heard it, it was just out there. I just thank God for you. 
Then soon I discovered my husband was in porn. And soon I discovered this. And the marriage almost fell apart. But God's grace has been saved. Thank God for the forgiveness of sins and new life in Christ Jesus. Luke 1 and 2 is all about that. I can only but summarize it. Whenever you offer the gospel to our children, you're saving them from Satan's clutches. You're saving them from the false utopias of this world, painted by the worldviews, painted by social media. There is only one true paradise. You're invited to it through Jesus Christ, our Saviour and our Lord. Amen? So we set for ourselves here, and for the whole denomination, strengthening faith, strengthening family, and some small ways to do it. We'll start the year always with a family conference to bless EP, English Presbyterian Churches. And then we'll do for those who are married, marriage enrichment, and for all regular devotions to keep focusing them. When you see the word family, you mustn't think it's for just biological families. It refers to the spiritual family of God that includes biological families. That's important. So how might that turn up? It will turn up in this way for us. We're inviting the whole English prosperity to come. Ministry to our elderly. Elderly folk can hear the gospel and believe in Jesus. Amen? Never too late for your grandfather, never too late for your grandmother, never too late for your uncle, never too late for your stubborn father. Right? So one of the testimonies then, yep, we shared, and he was sharing with me, we've been praying for this man for years. Totally intellectual, totally stubborn, but in God's good timing, right, came down with an illness, with cancer, and then the openness started, the openness started, then we were invited along, Mona and myself, and the openness started, he gave his life to Christ. It's that. There is hope. And so we invited Bishop Robert Solomon, former Bishop of Methodist Church, to come speak because he has a heart for this. And then Suzanne and Pakti, they're very high up in MOE. And why is that important? Because so many of our families fall apart when we do not know how to handle the steady stress in our schools. And that stresses parents, stresses children, causes a lot of identity problems, causes a lot of unity problems in our churches. And we're going to hear all those things. So mark the dates. We tell you in advance, March 1st and 2nd, Friday night, Saturday morning. Marriage enrichment twice a year, at least. We estimate there are about 500 couples here in ARPC. I estimate maybe 80 to 100 have gone for this. I want to plead with you. Can I become slightly stronger, more authoritarian? Every single couple here should go for marriage enrichment. Amen? Let me try again. <laughs> you know I'm totally powerless in the Presbyterian church, right? But we pray and we plead and never take this for granted. I don't know, between Mona and myself, we've run 50, 60, all through the years, more than that. Each time we go, we learn afresh what it means for me to be a sacrificial husband. She learns afresh what it means to be a submissive wife. We learn afresh what it means to parent our children, not to be the next worker for the economy, but the next worshipper of God by worshipping the Lord Jesus. So mark these dates for us. The topics that, might, that will be covered, God's design, communication, sexual intimacy, stewardship of money, all the things that will are ah, lightning rods that might break a marriage relationship, conflict resolution, spiritual intimacy and godly habits. And so, across the board, we want to do this. So the action plan for us is strengthening faith, strengthening family, is the certitude of faith that you will come to a personal relationship with Jesus. And in knowing Jesus, 
step by step. So, going to write this and send this out to our Presbyterian churches. Once a month, can you pray about the elderly in our midst? Once a month, can you pray about the young adults? Once a month, can you pray that the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, and by God's grace, one or two a year will join our ministry apprentice program and be trained, be sent to Bible college and come out. You know what we are facing in Chinese Presbyterian churches, English-speaking Presbyterian churches? The, about 80% of our ministers are above 50 years old, especially in the Chinese side. There is no pipeline of young pastors being trained in Bible college. So we've done two, two things. Slow down the retirement, open the doors by giving scholarships to younger people to study in our Bible colleges. I'm addressing this with you so that you don't sit in a bubble thinking that every week is just, what is happening to the church in Singapore? This must happen. You must believe, as you read Luke 1 and 2, how marvellous, how beautiful it is to be part of the church of Jesus Christ. Amen? That God, in His mercy and His grace, have chosen you and called you to salvation in Christ. And all that is there. I've just flipped up my phone so I can read this. During COVID, Everything went online and live stream was the number one thing. Is that right? With live stream, church became borderless and people could tune in. And so this man in America, who was searching for a church, Bible teaching, Christ-centered, and he chanced upon us, or somebody introduced himself, and he says, let me read here, he says this, okay, allow me to read this. I apologize for the length of this message. But this is, I wanted to share this testimony with you. So, he started to tune in to our live stream from, he knows the date exactly, 21st of March, 2020. And I followed every live stream. I didn't miss it until it stopped. He tuned in from Los Angeles and all the elements of the service were impactful for him. The rendition, our musicians put together a rendition of he is worthy, was especially memorable for him. In one service, when our whole country and the whole world was under threat, we, we, we took the risk to sing the song, this is home, this is home, Singapore. Can we as Christians shine in this place called home and be a light to people around us? He was moved by that. Most impactful was the faithful preaching, uh, and faithful and clear preaching of God's word by you and the other pastors. He could name me every single pastor. You know that tall one with the curly hair? Ah, Lak Yong, I said. Well, the one who's vertically challenged? Ah, Pastor Joe. Uh, the one who... Uh, he could name who is good in what? What illustrations came from them? This is amazing, right? I was deeply blessed by attending the virtual church camp. We couldn't have church camps. So virtual church camp, he attended it. He gives me the dates. 12 to 14 of June, 2020. I learned so much from that series on Revelation, the testimonies that were shared. And just to assure you, I was there. He sent a photo. Is there a photo? He sent a photo. And a photo of him. <laughs> he says, he says, right? I am in, uh, okay, I am in the seven row, nine column. Look, seven row, nine column. When we had this, it was multiple screens. I don't know, six, seven hundred people turn up. And he says, I was your most faithful virtual member. 
he turned up in church here two, three months ago just to meet us in the flesh, to experience ARPC as to what it really is in person. Would you do that? He so loves belonging here. And you wake up each morning, should I go? <laughs> or not go? He so longs. He tuned into almost everything we put up on the net. And one of the things we put up was by Mercy Ministry. And the thing that was put up by Mercy Ministry was, why did God give man a prostate? <laughs> do we do such things? We do because we have a lot of medical doctors here who deal with some part of our fallen bodies and give us spiritual hope in Christ. So he tuned into that. Everything is dated, right? 16th of May, 2021. 16th of May. Right? In January 2022, I was diagnosed with prostate cancer. But all the knowledge I gained from the previous sermons and that workshop was very helpful in my walk with God. You thankful for the salvation you receive in Christ? Thankful for the church you belong here? Yet highly cognizant of the challenges of the church from the west to the east. That Satan is doing his best to make things more attractive out there for young and old. But we want to be committed to Jesus. Amen? That Jesus holds the hope for us, whatever age we are. And then he shared his life story with me. He, I, he said we encourage him. His life story, he couldn't have children. He went to adopt five kids, four from China, all of them with special needs. Then one from Cambodia. We brought him out to lunch, Mona and myself, and far from us encouraging him, I came back and I was, I was high, spiritually high. When we continue to preach the gospel and respond with certitude of faith about the things written down for us, our lives are shining light for Him. Who wants to adopt special needs kids? And China had a lot of them. And I met a good number of American Christians whose gospel-heartedness is not just one, not just two, for Him, five. And each one, He brought one daughter here, because seashore is different, her colour is different. And then the story spilled out. I asked her at Little India where we brought him for lunch. Do you love your dad? Love my dad to bits. Love my dad. Does, does your dad love you? He loves us. He loves us. When Jesus comes into your life, you'll be known supremely for love. Amen. That is the kind of church we want to be. That's the kind of church we want you to pray and invite people to come and hear the gospel and change their lives. Amen? Let's stand and sing this closing song together. In Christ alone, we have certainty of the facts and certitude of faith that who we believe in is totally trustworthy. <laughs>